When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 118, Anything Helps. Today's proverb comes from Boethius. I'll read it twice. Good fortune deceives, but bad fortune enlightens. Once more. Good fortune deceives, but bad fortune enlightens. What does this mean? Well, you could paraphrase it a number of different ways to make it clearer. Good fortune deceives, but bad fortune enlightens. Wealth deceives, poverty enlightens. Pleasure deceives, pain enlightens. Popularity deceives, unpopularity enlightens. Winning deceives, losing enlightens. I love going to high school basketball games. I loved going back when I was in high school. And I now teach at a school that has a pretty decent basketball team. And I live on the campus of my school. Home games are played, I don't know, 200 yards from my front door. So it's easy during the season to walk, uh, walk over and catch a game. I go to a fair number of varsity basketball games. And when I go, I cheer. I get into it. I stand and yell my support. And I do this because I want my school to win. I want our team to win. 
And when they win, I'm happy about it. And I imagine they're happy about it too. The players are happy. The fans are happy. Having been to a number of high school basketball games in the last two years, I want to say that the greatest basketball game of all time was not an NBA game. It wasn't a championship game, a playoff game. Greatest basketball game of all time was not in some NCAA tournament. Greatest basketball game of all time must have been or must be a high school game. A high school game played in a relatively small town between two fairly evenly matched teams, but not perfectly matched. The greatest game of all time is between these two fairly matched teams, wherein somehow in the course of the game, both teams come to think of themselves as the good guys here. And this is either because of the foul situation or the fans or the schools themselves, their rival schools, their schools that have different ideologies, different convictions, different dogmas. And the game is close, it's down to the wire, the lead has changed 50 times, and only two or 300 people get to see it. That's the greatest basketball game of all time. I've been to that game. Maybe you've been to that game too. And not only have I been to that game, I've been to that game and cheered for the side that won. And it was great. At the same time, when that game comes along, when that game happens, when any game happens, I want my team to win, but when that game comes and my team loses, I think to myself, sometimes I even say this out loud to the players a day later, when my team loses, I think it's better this way. It's better for us to try very hard and to play our absolute best and to lose. It's better for the players. Winning earns you praise. And to some extent, warranted praise is a right and necessary part of life. But winning and the pleasure that comes with winning also ties us to the world. Winning makes the world a pleasanter place to be. Winning makes us feel at home here. Winning does not set our minds on things to come. Winning does not set our minds on things above. Winning sets our minds on things below. I imagine that the concept of peaking too early is one that everyone is familiar with. Peaking too early, the expression simply refers to too much early success in life, too much good luck when you're too young 
Too much good luck when you're young ruins your drive. It makes you not hungry. It makes you not creative. Early failure will keep you sharp, though. Bad luck early on will focus your attention on the ways that you need to improve. Early failure sends you back to the drawing board. Early failure makes you reassess what you've got. It makes you re uh, it makes you reevaluate your tools. It makes you rethink your tools. Early failure forces you to be content with what you have while also helping you understand how to move beyond what you have. Early failure makes you reimagine your tools. It's often a man in desperate straits who reimagines the entire world, right? Necessity is the mother of invention. And people who are very successful are rarely put in a position of necessity. The very rich, the very popular, the very successful are rarely in a position of necessity. They're never reduced to necessity. They have these vast repositories of fame, reputation, money that they can rely on, and they're never reduced to necessity. Bad luck, bad fortune reduces you to necessity, and it forces invention. It forces reinvention. Bad luck makes you look beyond the surface of things, right? And at I think a healthy mind, a healthy human mind, is naturally inclined to seek out what is below the surface. That's a healthy mind. An unhealthy mind, a sick mind, a weak mind, trusts all appearances, every appearance. And not only does a weak mind trust appearances, a weak mind generally does not even look beyond appearances. Even when appearances are trustworthy, there's still something more to discern underneath appearances. And good luck, good fortune generally keeps us from ever having to look beyond the surface of a thing. Good luck keeps us in the realm of the superficial. It keeps us in the realm of the, of the facade. Whereas bad luck is inherently spiritual. It drives spiritual realization. It drives spiritual contemplation. On the other hand, success, good fortune, tends to create overly easy solutions to problems. Money answers everything, as Solomon says. Money is a very simple solution to problems. And so the very successful tend to only deal in easy solutions to problems. People with bad luck have to find more creative solutions to problems. They have to find cheaper solutions. And a cheaper solution to a problem is almost always a better one. Almost always. Now, this is true in the realm of like material things and how we sort out material problems. But it's just generally true of the intellectual life of a man that wealth deceives and 
poverty enlightens. Every writer has juvenilia. And juvenilia is, juvenilia is a kind of interesting term. Juvenilia refers to the young, unformed, often very dense intellectual work of someone who goes on to a career of great distinction. And it's typically understood when you refer to juvenilia, you're referring to the work of someone who goes on to become famous before they're famous, which is interesting. Juvenilia is interesting because of what they ultimately turn out to be. And so, like, uh, Jane Austen's juvenilia. If Jane Austen had not gone on to become quite well-known, her early writing probably would not be worthy of consideration. But given that the woman's genius is later vindicated, her early writing gets this sort of... um, Unpublished writing, I mean. Gets this more uh, generous appraisal, and this is often the case with with writers especially that go on to become famous, that their early work is really poured over um, because it's, it's believed that in the era prior to their success, there was some kind of purity to the way that they thought, even if that purity was unformed, that might be worth mining for gold. Now, every writer has juvenilia. Even, like, writers that aren't famous have juvenilia. But every writer who grows up to be a writer, everyone who ultimately comes to be a writer, whether you're Jane Austen, whether you're somebody, I don't know, far less less renowned, everyone whose career ultimately turns as a writer has juvenilia. I have juvenilia. I'm not saying I'm famous. I am saying I became a writer over the long haul of my life. And I have the sort of early body of work, 100, 200 maybe short stories that I wrote before my early 30s. In my early 30s, I went from thinking of myself as a short story writer to thinking of myself as an essayist. I'm really an essayist anymore. But I used to write short stories. I still write them on occasion. I used to write short stories. And on occasion, and I mean like once every five years or so, I have a reason to haul out short stories that I wrote in my late teenage years, early 20s. And I find the way that I thought back then kind of embarrassing, obviously. If you're not embarrassed by your juvenilia, you're just arrogant. So every writer has to be embarrassed by their juvenilia, and I most certainly am, and I have no desire for anything that I wrote at the age of 18 or 19 to ever see the light of day. At the same time, I recognize in that early work um, this sort of idea-rich, um, I, I don't know how to, how to refer to it, like the early work that I did back in late teens, early 20s, is rich with ideas. It's absolutely miserable and completely embarrassing in terms of editing and execution. So the stories that I wrote back in my early 20s are just jam-packed with ideas. 
Some of them are decent and reworkable, and I have reworked them. I mean, a lot of the ideas that I'm, t- I'm tinkering with back then are total waste of time, obviously. And the execution is just overwrought, as Aristotle says of the young, they do everything too much. And when I, I look back at, you know, the short stories I was writing in my early 20s, they're maximalistic. Um, there, was, there was no attempt to create streamlined, elegant work. It's incredibly inelegant. That's, that's, maybe, that's maybe the best way of describing uh, my writing over the first seven, eight years that I was writing. Incredibly inelegant. Um, just stuffed. Overstuffed. Um, but the, but the way that I wrote back then was just this, I would compile ideas for weeks and then I would, I would figure out a way of stuffing all of those ideas in the same story. This is how I wrote. And so the only reason why I bring any of this up is because the way in which I generated ideas back then was entirely related to the fact that I was completely broke. Like, I lived on my own in my late teens and early 20s. I was entirely broke. I had no money. It's remarkable to me now that I did not starve in my early 20s, given that I was living on somewhere around, like, $600 a month. I think I lived on $600 a month. I was 22 years old. And how I, how I did this, I mean, we're not talking about like the 1960s or something here, right? I, I made it on $600 a month in the year 2002. I mean, it was not all that long ago I made it on $600 a month. I think I spend $600 every two weeks on food alone now. How I lived for $600 a month. How I bought all of my clothes. How I paid rent. How I paid electricity. How I did all of this on $600 a month is mind-boggling to me now. I had very bad luck, right? If you are on your own, 22 years old, in the modern world, and you're making it on $600 a month, you are well below the poverty line. Like, I lived for several years well below the poverty line. I didn't have money for anything. I I worked at a restaurant and ate food at the restaurant. That's, like, where most of my food came from for several years of my life was the restaurant where I worked because I could not afford to live on how much money I made. Um, And I was not, during this time, for part of this time, I was enrolled in college, but for part of it, I wasn't. So it wasn't like I had, you know, grant money or loan money to live on. But I had no money at all. And back when I had no money, no money, like no money to go shopping. Like, I don't know how much time I waste now that I'm 41 and I'm enjoying the success that everyone enjoys in their career, in the thick part of their career, in their 40s. Like, the amount of time that I spend on shopping now is unreal. There are times 
There are times when I shop so much, I'm amazed that I have any ideas in my head because I can feel interesting ideas vacating my mind when I go shopping. I swear to you. And the, the times when my ideas are weakest and thinnest are times when I'm shopping too much. One-to-one correlation. When I write something for Cersei and I get to the end of it and I think, ah, this isn't that this isn't worth publishing. There's a very good chance I've spent more time shopping in the week prior to writing that than I should, than is healthy. I, I swear this is true. When I was in my early 20s, when I was entirely broke, I spent a lot of time just walking around. <laughs> That's what I did. Like, thinking back now, I, I walked everywhere. Like, I had no car. I could not afford a car. I walked everywhere. I would walk. There were times when I would, there was a cheap grocery store two and a half miles from my apartment. There were times when I would walk two and a half miles to the grocery store. And I would buy not more groceries than would fit in my backpack. On the, and this is the rare occasion when I actually bought groceries. Most of the time, most of the time, I'm just eating at the restaurant where I worked. But when I absolutely had to like, eat a salad or an apple, I would walk two and a half miles to the grocery store. And I had my Discman and I listened to music and I walked for hours. I would go on, I lived in a small town. I lived in a small college town, 30,000 people. I would regularly stay up until five or six in the morning writing and often take two hour breaks in the middle of all night writing sessions to just go wander around town. Just aimlessly walk around. And when you go for a walk, you're just, you're in your thoughts, right? When you you go for a walk, if there's nothing to do, walking is what you're doing. And so you just have time to think. And I would walk everywhere. And as I walked, I would think, I don't know. I wish that I had some better way of, more intimate way of describing it than to simply say I would go walking and I would think. But that's all I can really put to it. What would I think about? I would think about uh, girls I had been in love with. I would think about movies that I enjoyed. I would think about my parents. I would think about what life was like in high school. I would think about the dynamic between my friends. I would just brood over life itself. And in all of this, there was this ability to generate ideas. And I'm not saying that they were all good. I'm saying that some of them were, though. That I would generate just scores of ideas. And I would compile these ideas for weeks. And then I would stuff them all in the same story. And I was able to do this. And it was productive. And it was helpful, ultimately, for me. Because I was broke. Because I was poor. Because bad luck had in 
enlightened me. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 